This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Laurel Barr, the author of Love Gone Wrong, Living Happily Ever After as Survivors of Abuse. Laurel shares her personal journey of transformation. The book highlights the stereotypical aspects of abuse, allowing victims to identify and see themselves in her story. Anyone will benefit from the lessons she learned and come away with increased awareness, compassion, hope, and the courage to take a step towards their own healing. Laurel Barr is an author, speaker, and catalytic leader. Her passion is to inspire and coach others struggling with brokenness. A survivor of childhood sexual abuse with 17 years experience as a registered nurse and 17 years as a licensed pastor, Laurel is uniquely qualified to help others who have experienced the effects of emotional trauma make progress and heal. Currently, Laurel is the director for Sexual Abuse Victims Anonymous, or Savanon. She speaks to parents, survivors, clinicians, community groups, and churches to create awareness regarding the emotional harm done by sexual abuse while promoting the pathway to healing Savanon provides. Using her team-building abilities, Laurel recruits, leads, trains, and coaches volunteers who facilitate the free eight-week healing groups available throughout the United States and around the world. To learn more about Laurel and her work, please visit laurelbar.com. Here is the interview with Laurel Barr. In your own words, who is Laurel Barr? Oh, well, um, I am first and foremost a wife and mother. I've been married for 35 years, and I have two grown children with uh, both of them are married with children. And um, I'm a Christian. I've been a follower of, of Jesus since I was a young girl. I would also say that I'm someone that has been called to help people heal. I started out as a nurse early on in my life, right after college. I was an RN and then became a pastor. And now I'm a director for a a ministry that helps victims of sexual abuse heal. Before we talk about some of the topics in your book, Love Gone Wrong, Living Happily Ever After as Survivors of Abuse, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off-record. The first one is, what is another word for healing, Laura? Well, I think it would have to be restoration. 
kind of returning things back to the original state that it was designed to be in. What is the meaning of well-being to you? Well, you know what came to mind when you said that was that old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And for me, I think well-being has to do with that peace and centeredness that comes from knowing God and having Him in your life. I have a few questions about life, one after another. But before that, let me ask you this question. What, where, and who is God to you? Well, at an early age, God became my father, really, heavenly father. When I was a young girl, I grew up in a home that was filled with a lot of darkness and abuse. And my father struggled with anger and rage. And one Sunday, uh, my mom and dad took us and dropped us off at Sunday school. I don't know if they needed a little break or what that was about, but I'm so thankful now because I was four or five, I think at the time. But when I heard that I had a, a heavenly father who loved me so much that he made a way for me to go to heaven and spend eternity with him um, and was there for me um, and had that much love for me that um, I was just really drawn to that and and not only him, but his people. Um, the church became a, a place where I could go and just count on the fact that I'd be loved and accepted there. So to me, life is a miracle itself, but everything else becomes a miracle when we are in touch with that love, right? Let me ask you some general questions about life itself. What is life to you? What is this experience that we are having <laughs> here? That's a, that's a deep question. What is life? I think that what comes to mind is life is a gift. I believe that, that we were given the gift of life by our, by our Heavenly Father and that um, we were created for relationship with Him and that our life is about loving Him and loving other people. What do you think is the opposite of life? Mm. Oh, yes, I believe there is, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, well, I, of course, death. Think about unnecessary endings. You know, we were created for eternal life, for life and ending. But I think um, the opposite of that would be, would be death. Yeah. When you say God, do you also mean the Spirit? the human spirit, the human soul? Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. So for me, God encompasses three things. Um, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. And so I use those terms somewhat in interchangeably at different times, but I'm really referring to all three. There's a unity, of course, between the three of them that make one God. I guess another question that comes to mind is the pronoun when you say him, could that be replaced for her or it? If there's no gender for this spirit? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think my uh, foundation would be God's word. And as it's written there, it's usually, well, almost always that I know of the, the male pronoun. But I definitely believe that God has both male and female attributes because we know that we were created in His image. So He must have. <laughs> he must have. <laughs> the feminine somewhere in there. Yes, that's right. <laughs> oh, thank you for answering that question <laughs> the way you did. <laughs> 
What is the meaning of freedom to you? What is to be free? Well, you know, I go back to kind of what is the opposite of freedom, you know, captivity, slavery, and not being free to do and and relate the way God intended. So freedom would, again, I'd go back to my roots, my my spiritual roots for that answer, but freedom would have to do with just being who and what God created me to be and and being able to love and and connect with others. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And do you have a vision for a new reality? Wow, how what a pertinent question for right now. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. Yeah, and praying a lot about it. Kind of what I what I've been sensing as I prayed about it and talked to God, you know, the greatest need that we have is for him. And that's how we were designed. And so the the further we get away from a relationship with Him, um, with God, the more, I want to say, the more social unrest, the more injustice that's going to be. And I think what He longs for us is to turn our hearts back to Him and to treat each other with love. <laughs> you know, I think most problems in our world can be solved with love. Honestly, it, that sounds like a too simple of a thing, but I really believe that. I think we live in a complex world and we are complex beings, but it goes back to that, that simplicity of being kind and non-judgmental space, state of mind. Treating others like we would want to be treated. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It is. I didn't ask what love is because earlier you connected God to love. So I guess I will leave it at that. Would you like to answer that question of what love is? You know, I wouldn't mind. I I was thinking about that question earlier, actually, and just how I would have answered that in, you know, I'm in my 50s now, and uh, how I would have answered that maybe younger, when I was younger, earlier in my life, would have been to say it was a feeling. You know, it's how I feel. But as I've gotten older, that definition has changed. And for me, Love is really an action, despite how I feel. So love is doing what's best for others, despite what it costs me. I love that because now we are not restricted to feelings and they can be misleading a lot of times. Oh, my feelings can be can betray me quite often. Yeah. <laughs> what I had for breakfast and how much <laughs> sleep I had. And, you know, but if I just ground it in, okay, what? love would look like in this situation is what's best for them. You know, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's wisdom. Thank you for that deep wisdom. Right. So one more question, warm up question before I ask you questions related to your work. What is your understanding and idea of peace? Gosh, I'm, I must be thinking in an opposites today because I'm thinking, well, what's the opposite of peace <laughs> would, be, yeah. would be conflict, right? So um, I think of peace would be existing without conflict. Yeah. So going back again to relationships, you know, your vertical relationship with God and your horizontal relationships with other people. And then that even that relationship you have with yourself, like you were saying earlier, you know, being able to be at peace with yourself. So let's talk about your work. My first question had to be this one. How did you become a writer, Laura? That is such a funny question because 
I don't consider myself a writer. And I, I know that has to change at some point, but <laughs> um, writing was new for me. I was actually a, a science major in college. I graduated with a, a BSN in nursing and um, English was my most difficult subject in high school and college. And so I felt called to write uh, my story um, specifically um, after I uh, a journey I took to recover from what happened in my childhood. And so I wrote for that purpose, but I didn't necessarily consider myself a writer. I like that, this idea of just being inspired, which has a lot to do with the spirit. <laughs> yeah. But what was the intention of writing your book, Love Gone Wrong? Well, so you'll find I'm a pretty honest person. So I would say to you that I didn't want to write that book, but I've lived my life kind of with a singular purpose to just follow God and obey and try to do my best to kind of follow his leading. And I felt strongly that he was asking me to write my story for the purpose of helping other people. And so I stepped away at the time I was a, a pastor here at a local church and I stepped away from my career to write my my story, to write this book. And I did so, uh, I was actually kind of angry um, when I started writing. I I called it my sucky assignment for probably the first, oh, six months. <laughs> and um, I'm happy about it um, because the reason is it required me um, to go back. It had been eight years since I had journeyed through kind of a very difficult time in my life. And it ended with healing, but the journey to get to healing was really, really hard. And I lost relationships. Um, I had to do a lot of really hard things. And so to go back and write about it, I had to get my counseling files out. I had to get all my prayer journals out. And in some ways, I had to relive it. I had to relive it a little bit. And that was that was hard. So here I was experiencing freedom and peace and all this joy from from being set free from the trauma of sexual abuse. And I had to return to that um, to write about it. And so that was hard. Yeah. And that's usually the journey of healing. For some reason, revisiting those um, traumas. I like the way you say you're listening to God, the directions and being guided by the Spirit. How do we know when we are listening to the voice of God? How do we know for sure? Yeah. I'm always suspect of anyone who says, I heard this from God, like a definitive, I heard this from God, because that's not been my experience. Um, my experience has been, well, I think God might be saying this. You know, I hear God's voice in a lot of different ways. And I think about that verse in the Bible that says um, he's knocking and, and we can answer that door and open the door and he'll come in and fellowship with us. Um, I think God is always knocking at the door, wanting relationship with us, wanting to talk to us. And if we're looking, we can hear his voice. But it, it kind of develops, that ear for God develops over time. I usually hear God's voice through prayer, um, just an impression, a word or, or an image or just a thought. Sometimes I hear him talking to me through my circumstances or uh, a Bible story. 
but just kind of always looking for what he might be saying. Yeah, it's interesting the way you say it. It's not a direct voice, not something that's linear. Yeah, telling us exactly what to do and how to do it. No, right. no. Yeah, mm-hmm. I wish it was. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that goes back to free will. We are free to choose in a way, to listen or not listen. And now I always ask that question, why do we have to have free will? Yeah. Uh, it seems like it's part of the experience in the human body. It might be, right? Well, I think too, you know, you develop an ear for God over time just by being around other Christians and or other believers, other people that follow God. I think about uh, even in the Bible, that story of, of Samuel and how he had to learn to hear what God's voice sounded like. It's a, it's a process. I love this idea of being around those who are in touch or are open to listen to the voice of God. So it seems like they, in a way, open the space for us to be in the same state. Yeah, you find yourself going, oh, <laughs> I know for many years, I didn't know you, it was possible to have a two-way relationship with God. That was news to me. And boy, when that, when that uh, realization hit and I started to really pursue that kind of relationship with God, that's, boy, that's when it became pretty exciting. Isn't it when we listen to the voice of God, don't we also feel in the body when it's that voice that we are being guided by divine force? Absolutely. I think there is a, you know, God uses our kind of a, well, if you think about it, it's spirit to spirit, really our spirit connecting with God's spirit. And so um, he uses our minds and our eyes. I think he uses our circumstances. So definitely uses all of our senses to be able to understand what he's saying to us. Yeah. So in a way, it's very important to be self-aware of ourselves so we know. Mm, I love the idea of self-knowledge and self-awareness. Let me ask you um, another question. This is about the long-term effects of trauma. So what are some of them? And what was your healing journey like? Sure. The long-term effects of trauma are very surprising, I think. Um, When we think about trauma from sexual abuse or assault, I know trained as a nurse, I think of the immediate physical implications of what happened. Things that I might find on an exam. I don't necessarily think about the long-term effects, which actually can affect every part of your life. We know that uh, sexual trauma can affect you relationally. It can affect you psychologically, emotionally, and physically. So for, for instance, some of the common physical symptoms would be um, an exaggerated startle reflex, you, which is you know, something a lot of people might not realize. Sleeping disturbances, um, headaches, GI problems, eating disorders. You know, there's more, but there's definitely physical symptoms that linger many years after sexual trauma has occurred. And the same is true for emotional symptoms. I was in my 40s when I started having increased emotional problems. And it was it was really, really embarrassing, actually. I had trouble controlling my emotions. And uh, we know that the younger you are when you experience sexual trauma, the more trouble you will have later in life regulating your emotions. 
And for some people, that's anger. For others, it could be sadness or crying easily. That was more my case. I'd be in a professional setting in a meeting and be engaging with some level of conflict. And and then the tears would flow. And I knew it wasn't professional. I knew I shouldn't be crying, but I couldn't control it. And so I set out on a mission to fix that. (laughs) And I got all these books and I did a lot of reading and I took surveys on emotional immaturity. And instead of it helping, it got worse. Um, And then I started to develop other problems. Um, Depression, thoughts of suicide. I started having panic attacks. Um, And I, I just, I didn't know if I was going crazy or what was happening. And then finally, that first memory of sexual abuse surfaced when I was, I was in the memory, I was two or three years old. And that's when I started making the connection between my emotional problems and what happened to me early on in life. But those dots weren't connected until that memory returned. And I think that's, that can be the case, that repressed memories is, is real hard to understand. But it is, it's very real. And it happens to quite a few, quite a few people. Do you think that sexual abuse is different for women than it is for men? Well, I think in some ways, I do think the way it affects them, I guess I want to answer that two ways. I think it affects them in much the same ways, but I also feel like their experience can be very different than women's. Um, Both sexual abuse will affect a woman's identity and a man's identity. They're their sense of identity. And and so in that sense, they're the same. And some of their, obviously their symptoms would be the same, but how it impacts them and how they relate to life as a result of it, I I think would be slightly different. Because we respond to life differently. Yeah. How common sexual abuse is these days? Uh, You know, I, uh, (laughs) I knew it was common. But I didn't realize how common until I started writing my story, writing the book. And honestly, that, that's when my heart started to change about the assignment God had given me. I started writing the book and a lot of people that I knew thought I had stepped away from my role at the church because I had retired, which was very surprising to me because I didn't think I looked old enough to retire. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of that was a surprise. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, but I, 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 in the beginning, kind of let that play out because I thought, well, I don't know if I want to tell people I'm writing a book and what it's about. But eventually that changed and I started to get more courage. And so I said, well, I would tell people when they asked, oh, how's retirement? I'd say, well, gosh, I'm really not retired. I'm writing a book about my story. And so naturally the next question was, well, what's your story about I said, well, it's about my sexual abuse story and how I healed. And I can't tell you how many times there was this long pause, just a long pause. And then I heard things like, oh, well, that happened to me or that happened to my sister or that happened to my mom. She's not doing well. Would you, would you call her? Would you talk to her? And I started to realize that courage inspires courage. That when I had the courage to step forward and share my story, it opened the door for others to be able to share theirs. 
And so I have learned since then that one in three girls will be sexually abused by the time they're 18. One in three girls. One in four to five boys will be sexually abused before the age of 18. And most will never tell a single soul. Um, We know that from the adult population, one in six women and one in 33 men will be a victim of an attempted rape or a completed rape. And so think about your circle of friends, your sphere of influence. Think about that. A third to a quarter of them have experienced some sort of sexual trauma. And most have never dealt with it. Most have never even shared that story with anybody before. I'm wondering what the causes are. What would you say are the causes of this kind of violence? It's a lack of uh, relationship with God, for sure, I would say. But, yeah, what would you say, Laurel? Well, we know a couple things about that, right? We know that it's generational, which is tragic, right? Many perpetrators or those that offend others sexually, they are actually repeating what was done to them. And it's a form of power and control, a way to get back the loss of control they felt when they experienced that abuse. Yeah. Yeah, it's really tragic. When you talk to me about being open, going through the healing process, that's uh, challenging for all of us to go through. That says it all too, in a way, because most people don't heal themselves because they don't want to go back. They don't want to do the work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. They don't want to face it. No. I mean, well, two things, I think, with that. The first one is uh, we deny and minimize the impact it had on us. Uh, True. Right? Like, for years growing up into my adulthood, I knew something awful had happened to me. And I didn't have memories to go with it, but what I did have was what they call body memory. And I didn't have a term for that. I didn't know what that meant. But body memory is when your your body remembers the trauma, responds to trauma without your mind recalling it at the same time. And so I would have these symptoms of pressure and discomfort periodically come and go. And I would think, what is that? You know, and uh, later found out that was a classic symptom of sexual abuse. But for years, I thought, well, something happened. Obviously, something's wrong, but I'm fine. I survived it. It was kind of like surviving a car crash, you yeah, know? Yeah, uh, yeah. I lived, I'm good, I'm moving on. And in reality, there was all kinds of trauma that had been done and damage that had been done that I was unaware of. And so I think we minimize it, we deny it. Um, most of the people I know that have experienced sexual abuse will do that. So we deny it and the the importance of it. And then two, we we want to avoid the pain, right? And the discomfort of living, reliving that memory, which is very real. Um, that's very real. What that makes me think, the way you speak, is that just by being open to go back and um, do the work of healing, it's like being open to speak to God, to listen to the voice of God, isn't it? Well, it is. Because I think most of us who've been experienced abuse, when you talk about going back and reliving it, I know for me, the first thought that would come to mind was, I can't face it. 
Like I'm not strong enough to face that memory, which is a lie, right? Like you, we know you can face it. In fact, you are a survivor. Look what you've already experienced, but that I can't do it feeling comes over you and you just, I can't survive it. Um, And not realizing, okay, we're in a safe place. We can survive it. We can look at that. And really my experience has been that the, the more I've talked about it, the less it impacts me. Kind of to the point now when I talk about it so much with the work I do that it, it's kind of like talking about the weather. Like yeah, I, yeah. I don't have any emotion <laughs> attached wonderful. to it at all. Yeah, yeah. I know I heard a lot about shame and guilt. I have been myself, I wouldn't say the word victim, but I would say had unfortunately the experience of abuse. I know what that is like, the shame for me, but we're all different. What is that like for, um, do we share certain um, kinds of shame and guilt or we're all different? Well, we know that guilt and shame, they're, they're similar, but they're different, right? They're both really painful feelings. I think of guilt being, I did something wrong. It's attached to a behavior. You know, I feel guilty. I ate that cookie. I wasn't supposed to, you know, it, it it was a behavior, right? I feel guilt. Where shame is attached to our identity. I am bad. I'm a bad person. And so shame is a, a painful feeling of wrongdoing that affects our identity. And so for me, I it was such a, a strange experience uh, having those memories come back in my 40s. One, one day, I, you know, I was a, a, a mom, a wife. My identity was in my roles and in my relationship to God and, and other people. And the next day, my whole identity was wrapped up in being a victim of incest. I am, what kind of girl does that? What kind of girl? And so shame, you know, it really changes how we view ourselves and how we identify ourselves. That's powerful, right? That can take over our lives even, cause so much suffering. So entrenched in us, right? Because if you were abused or assaulted as a child by someone in authority or power over you, of course you're going to feel guilty, right? Of course you're going to feel shame because you don't have the ability to step back and look at that as an adult, right? All you can think of is, wow, I must have done something really bad. I must be really bad for my dad or my uncle or whoever it was to hurt me like this. You know, it's a punishment. And so we we have that kind of buried, you know, and encoded in us. And then we grow up living out of that, not even knowing why, you know, until we go back and face it. Right. Start asking those questions and investigating everything like you did. I love that, this idea. For me, it took a long time too. I was in almost my 40s too. That's interesting. It takes so long to well, sometimes. I, I want to change that. <laughs> I, I want yeah. to get to this younger generation and say, look, don't, don't wait for this trauma to play out and affect so many areas of your life. You know, deal with it now. So you don't have the PTSD and all these other symptoms, you know, deal with it now. And the even if we can do this, like how do we prevent this? How can we stop this from happening? 
part of what I do is help raise the awareness of sexual abuse and, and, and sexual assault. And I've come to really enjoy helping people learn how to set up boundaries in their life and do what they can to prevent it from happening to them or their children. And it, it, some of it is just awareness. You know, when my kids were young, um, there was that thing going on, you know, stranger danger. You know, we, we taught our kids about um, interacting with strangers and don't talk to strangers um, and kind of thinking along those lines, right? But, but now we know 93% of the time, someone's going to be, one, assaulted in their own home or near their home, and two, it's going to be by someone they know, not a stranger. I interviewed somebody, she's an educator too, sexual abuse, and she gave a lot of um, insights in that, and one of which was this one. She said, yeah, we think it's strangers, but it's not. It's people close to us that will abuse our children. And then she said that things that we should do, one of the things that kind of uh, came as a surprise is that parents, they a lot of times force the children to get closer to uncles or people around. Oh, Give your uncle a hug or go give your aunt a hug or go sit on their lap. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we need yeah. to change that. Yeah, that way of forcing children to do things because they know it. They're very intuitive. They know it when something or so someone is dangerous. Yeah. I would agree with that wisdom. Yep. Yeah. I watch children and I see if they are in the presence of someone that's harmful, they will hide behind a chair, the body language. So we need to pay attention as mothers, right, parents, to that, those cues. Well, and one of the, the biggest red flags is if a child avoids affection from a caretaker or caregiver, that should be a red flag. You should wonder why. You know, I have a memory uh, of uh, my parents having a get-together at our house when I was younger, and my dad wanted to put me on his lap with all of his friends standing around and I I kicked and and got away and left the room and one of his friends came after me and said you should go back and let your dad you know hold you and sit on his lap and and I couldn't and I thought why why was that such a vivid memory for me well because you know it wasn't a safe place yeah that's right so that's a that's a big red flag there's no profile for a perpetrator you know, it would be nice if, if, you know, they were easily identifiable, but they're not. And they look like everybody else. And um, so you can't tell. And so you have to treat everyone the same in terms of your boundaries and, and safeguarding yourself and your family. Do you have information on abusers? Are they mostly women or men who abuse others in this way, sexual way? Sure. Most of them are men, but we we definitely know that there are females that are sexually abusive. Uh, absolutely. Honestly, um, you know, one of the things I do now is is help lead healing groups for those who've been sexually abused. And part of what we do each and every week is uh, listen to one person's story. That's part of our program. And so I hear a lot of sexual abuse stories. And I've kind of, it's kind of rattled my cage in the sense of um, I've heard so many stories of, and realized that, gosh, I didn't realize that 
a girl who comes over to babysit could be abusing my child or my grandchild. You know, I always thought of boys. Maybe I won't have a boy babysitter, right? But uh, repeatedly, I've heard of girls who were babysitting the neighbor girl down the street um, abused me. I don't always think about siblings abusing other siblings, and that's actually very common as well. So when I say that it it could be anybody, I, I really mean that. Yes, there, it definitely is more often committed by a male, but because you don't know which females and which males, I, I would say just across the board, you would you would treat everyone the same. Yeah, no, I agree. For safety measures, yeah, I agree. It's sad. It's so sad that we are at this level. I have a, a vivid memory of um, from my own story. You know, I was working through what happened to me, and it was a family member. And, and it occurred to me and my husband one day that, oh, my gosh, that person had access to our children. We had, we had left our children alone with them when we were, they were younger. And so I started down this road of what if, right? What if? What if something happened to them and they don't remember? And um, so I remember going to talk to my counselor about that one day. And and she said, well, they will have the same opportunity for healing one day that you have. And, you know, I I thought, oh, you know, I, I hadn't looked at it like that. Like, wait a minute. If something happened, it's okay. Because the same God that loves me and can heal me can heal them. So that helped me kind of put my mind at ease, you know? Yes, yeah. Did you ask your children questions? Did you, did you look yes. for signs? I'm sure. Oh, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. We absolutely did, yeah. <laughs> That's really great. I have a few more questions almost at the end of the interview, but talk to me about forgiveness. Well, forgiveness is a process. It's a process. I know for me, forgiveness didn't happen overnight, and it happened as a result of really just knowing that that was what was best, not only for me, but for the other person. And um, so it was a decision I made. And and kind of what it looked like was whenever uh, something would come up and I would start thinking about what happened and how much pain they had caused in my life and how much damage, you know, how you do. And I would have to consciously stop and think, no, you know what? I'm letting that go. I'm going to let God be judge of that person and I'm not going to hold it against them. And I would just, you know, I'm going to let that go. And uh, and I would pray for that person. And over time, it, it was a really a miracle that God gave me compassion and just a real forgiveness for that person. Um, so much so that they began to ask me, why would I want a relationship with them if they had done what I said they had done? Um, and I'd say, well, I've been forgiven. Um, why would I not forgive you? How can I, how can I judge you when I've, I'm guilty of, of wrongdoing? Maybe not in this way, but we've all sinned, right? We've all blown it and God's forgiven me. And so I choose to forgive. Boy, that was a tough, tough concept for them. And unfortunately, we were never able to reconcile because, not because I hadn't forgiven, but because but they could not let it go. They they couldn't let it go. Yeah. Yeah. So I like that the idea that forgiveness is a process. 
which is connected to compassion. And I mean, for they have not really changed or have chosen to live a life that's in alignment with divine force, why would we be around them? <laughs> that's how I think in a way, because we need the inspiration from those who are in touch with the voice of the spirit. Yeah, right. Well, you know, you've probably heard stories like this too. And I, I'd heard stories where, you know, even deathbed confessions where an abusive father on his deathbed apologized to the daughter and was sorry for what he'd done and got things right with her and with God before he died. And that's a beautiful thing, right? We all kind of want that happy ending that with a bow on it, you know, so to speak. But we can have that happy ending whether or not that other person is sorry for what they did or not. You know, we can forgive and move on with our life either way. I agree. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> so what would you say are the most award, the most effective healing methods that you have, let's say, used? I think if, if there was one healing action that I would recommend to somebody, the most effective one, it would be to acknowledge what happened and tell somebody safe. Acknowledge what happened and tell it. We need to hear ourselves tell that story. And we need to tell it to somebody who's empathetic and has earned the right to hear it. And I think that process of telling it and then receiving the appropriate response is very healing. What is the response in a way like that we should look for on those who really care? You know, I've, I've started coaching people what to say when someone shares their sexual abuse story. Because often those stories render us kind of speechless. I know that when I hear some of these stories, I'm rattled, quite frankly. Um, that they're, they're so heinous. I'm, I'm just rattled. And so I've, I've come to recommend that people do three things. And the first one is to just acknowledge that this person has trusted you with something really sacred. And so you can do that by thanking them. Thank you for sharing that story with me. You're very courageous. You know, affirming them. And the next thing I, I coach people to say is, it wasn't your fault. It wasn't your fault. I believe you. It wasn't your fault. Because most victims believe deep down inside it was their fault. That it was something they did that triggered the violence. Yeah. And then the third thing I, I try and do is just to compliment them um, on a quality I've, I see in them. A positive thing that maybe um, resulted from what they've gone through. And so sometimes I'll say, you know, you're a very strong person. I really admire your strength. But we need to learn how to respond to these stories and make telling safe so that people can be healed of what's happened to them. Yeah, I agree. I love the work you do. Thank you so much, Laura. We need more healing. I guess this I'm trying to do in most of us, which is so wonderful. Yeah bring healing. Thank you for all you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you. I have a few more questions for you, but before I ask these questions, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? I think one thing that's really important that I would like to say is um, I know that some of the listeners today have been 
have experienced what you and I have. They've got sexual trauma in their past. And that often when we hear um, other people talking about this topic or hear stories, what happens is it'll trigger memories of our own abuse. And I would like to just say that if that happens, um, it's not a bad thing. It's an opportunity for healing. And I want to encourage them that they can face it. They can walk it out and get healing. Um, It is possible to live life without the effects of this trauma, but you're going to have to face it and you're going to have to take a step. I firmly believe that God has a unique rescue plan for each person. Um, No matter what's happened to them, no matter what they've done, there's a plan there for healing, but that you've that you've got to be committed to take that first step. I love that. Yeah, the commitment to healing, right? And it is the first step. So true. Do you believe in unconditional self-love? Yes. And if I was super honest, that's something I'm still working on. I think that kind of one of the lingering uh, effects of the abuse I went through um, is that I'm, I was really hard on myself, kind of grew up trying to be perfect trying to keep the peace in the house, you know, by being perfect. And so trying to undo that and not be so hard on myself, not not be so critical is still kind of one of those areas that I'm still working on. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? I wouldn't. I think about that, that question actually a fair amount. I don't know if it's being a nurse and then a pastor and now working with victims. I, I'm not sure why, but I've kind of lived my life uh, wanting to be able to look back and say, I did the best I could to do what God has called me to do. And so, you know, I I look forward actually to seeing Jesus and, and uh, getting to heaven and just, I, you know, I want to hear, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. And, and so that, you know, has played out in different ways in my life. I've, I've had to lay down some things that, you know, I wanted to do with my life. And um, so I could pick up what God had for me. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny because at the time you think you're making this big sacrifice and then it ends up that you kind of look at it and go, oh, well, I guess he knew better, you know, because I'm doing what I want to do now. Uh, I just didn't know it, know it at the time he asked me, but yeah. Yeah, I love the sense of inner peace. Yeah, just knowing that everything's fine, just the way it is now, and I'm ready. <laughs> trying to live no regrets, you know? Yeah, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, beautiful. And my last question, what are three things about life you know for sure as of now? Well, golly, that's a hard question. I would say that I know for sure where I'm headed. I have a a very personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's as real to me as, as you are. And I, I'm so thankful for that because he is my savior. And I, I really believe that I will see him face to face one day and that I'm not going to die, but, but I'm going to have eternal life. So I would say that I would say I'm, I'm very sure that, you know, as you and I talked about earlier, that love, true love, sacrificial love is the answer to so many of the world's problems, if not the answer. And I guess I'm, I'm sure that um, 
I'm doing what God called me to do um, with my life. I guess that would be the other thing. Thank you so much, Laura, for your presence. I love your faith, your trust in that that we cannot see, but we know it's here. I love the way you say that. Yeah, it's real to me. It's not just a, an idea, a belief, but it's real. It's here. That means a lot to me because um, most of the time we are just so caught up in what we see here as physical and we forget the other realm, the spirit. And, yeah. And that to me is everything, really. It is everything. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that, for bringing that message back. We need to hear more of that. And that's what I'm trying to do. All these voices saying the same thing. Love is the answer, basically. <laughs> Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? You can go to my website, laurelbar.com, and I have resources there. Um, and you can get a copy of my book there. You can also get it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, other bookstores also carry it. But I also have resources there um, symptoms of sexual abuse and trauma, and other things that you might find helpful. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks, Valeria. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Laurel Barr, please visit her website, laurelbarr.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.